0: Well, amen. It's an exciting Sunday for any church when uh, some of its folks want to receive uh, water baptism as a testimony publicly of their faith. And uh, we don't take that lightly here. We, we hold that in extreme uh, honor and are very proud of those who uh, are part of that. And I just want to take you through a couple of things about uh, baptism Scripturally, to help you get a picture of it, and most of you understand some of this, Um, and yet it's still really good to review it, and it's especially good to uh, find a way to let it become part of your DNA just the way you think, the way you understand how the faith, our faith works, and what God's done for us. And uh, I want to begin in Romans chapter 6 this morning, one of my favorite sections of scriptures chapter 6 through 8 of Romans and uh, I want you to just hear these words. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. I think that's the one I put in the text. So it, I'm hoping it's the same as you see there. Yeah. What shall we say then the apostle Paul writes? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now I'm just going to pause there because I really want you to get the setting of this verse, the the background and the crazy question. And uh, by the way, the Roman church If you have any historical concept of what that amounts to... It's a whole bunch of Jewish people who were loyal to the Old Testament laws and and all their Jewish faith. And they radically caught the vision that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, even though their leadership did not. The Jewish leadership still said, oh, he was just a fake. That was, that was not the real Messiah. And anybody believes that, we're going to persecute. We may even try to kill you, right? So, so there's a, a sect of, of core Jews that were not saved, that were resisting the, the Messiah himself and resisting the Christian faith Jesus came to proclaim. And then you have, in the other part of the, the culture there, you have the Romans who are completely worshiping pagan gods. And a bunch of them have found Christ... And so here they were, worshiping God, worshiping foreign gods, tons of them. And now they've found the true Christ, and and they've tried to go from a plurality of gods to this one and true God. They're going to worship Christ. They're meeting in the same small groups. I want you to think about your growth group times when you're just sitting around with ten or twelve folks. They're meeting in the same cell groups in homes. They're meeting in in private places because a lot of persecution. They're going up into the, the mountains and having these little cell group meetings. And in that meeting would be three or four Jewish people and four or five Roman people. And the Romans and the Jews never got along before until Christ came into their heart and bought a whole new thing happening. Jesus actually taught in John chapter 10, just way historical deal. Jesus taught in John chapter 10 to the Pharisees. He's he told them, he said, my sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. He's talking about Israel. My sheep hear my voice, and they will follow me. And he literally meant away from the core teachings of the Jewish leaders who are teaching bad doctrine. They will follow me, and I will be their shepherd. He says, I'm the, I'm the gate out of that mess of doctrine that that's bad teaching. They follow me. And then he says in John 10, and I have other sheep that you Jewish people haven't even thought about yet. He's talking about the Gentiles. He's talking about us. If you're not Jewish today, he was talking about us. He's saying, I have other sheep that you don't know anything about and one day we'll all be one fold. Well, that's what Paul's writing to in, in the book of Romans. He's writing to a, a fold of people that don't belong together socio, socioeconomically in any reference In any concept you could ever think of, you wouldn't put a bunch of Romans and a bunch of Jewish people in the same room together. It just doesn't fit. Unless they have one Savior. Unless they have one purpose, and that is to glorify God. Now, they fit perfectly together. Isn't that cool? So Paul writes to them, and he has to write this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Because the Romans have taken some of his... It's really the Greek culture that Paul's surrounded by there. They've taken some of Paul's teachings on grace to an extreme theology. And he's going to reel them back in. All of chapter 6 is to go, whoa, that's not how grace works at all. And so here's Romans chapter 6 is, is a reference back to Romans chapter 5. And I just want to back up a couple of verses for you. It won't be on the screen, but just listen. Paul says in Romans 5... The law came in that transgressions might increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. A bunch of you have heard me teach on this. As a matter of fact, it's part of our journey class um, that we teach. And here's what Paul says: wherever there's sin, there's always more grace. It's really a picture of, of a river flooding, and he says, however high sin floods over the riverbanks. Grace will always extend way beyond. He's saying they will extend not just not just a little beyond, but immeasurably beyond. They will extend. So uh, Paul's saying that's how cool grace is. Wherever there's sin, grace covers it. Wherever there's sin, grace covers it. Wherever there's sin, grace covers it. So you know what the Greek said, huh? So the more we sin, the more grace there is. That's pretty cool. Let's just all sin a bunch. <laughs> Paul's like, stop thinking that way. That's what this verse is all about. He's going, no, 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 no. That's not. The the whole point of God's grace was to clear your sin debt. The whole point of God's grace was to save you from sin, not to sin. And the more you sin, does it increase? Grace has already increased. Grace is plenty. Actually, Paul says later to the Romans, uh, grace is sufficient. It covers everything you need. So it doesn't help for you to sin more. It actually hurts grace when you sin more. And that's what he's going to write about in Romans chapter 6. That's why there's this weird question, should we continue in sin so that grace may increase? And I just want to say, right as we're just covering my favorite topic in the world, which is grace, there's only one way to get into heaven and eternity, and that's by grace through faith. There's only one way. There's only one way to be saved, and that's to believe that God's grace... On the cross, when Christ came, He he hung on a cross and He paid for your sins. You didn't deserve that, and He didn't deserve the cross, but He took it as a free gift to you. Grace is free for us. It cost Him everything, but it's free for us. Amen? So, here's the, here's the beauty of this passage. Paul begins Romans chapter 6 by saying, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Uh, God forbid, may it never be as... In the Greek, we had to memorize this in college. We used to say it all the time to each other, Meganoite, may me, we'd go around the campus going, Meganoite, Meganoite. What does that mean? It means God forbid. You know, if we actually I'll just tell you the funny part of that. We'd actually go to we'd go to the uh, cafeteria at the Bible college and for breakfast and somebody would say, Oh, he made scrambled eggs again, and we'd go, Meganoite, Meganoite, God forbid. Because his scrambled eggs were horrible at the campus. Anyway, but how can it be we who died to sin still live in it. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Um, and let, and here, here's the rest of it. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. The whole point of our physical transformation that God does for us when we get saved is to say, once you were like this, dead, and now I've made you alive. And so baptism, physical baptism, is literally a picture of burial and resurrection, death to life through Christ. And so just just get your head around a couple of things here. Uh, begin by saying every Christian should be baptized, and there's a lot of arguments about that. I was reading a bunch of them this week just for fun, uh, reading a bunch of little blog posts and stuff about, you know, that's an old-fashioned thing, and it was just for the new church and the first church and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, if it, you know, the first church kind of was the model, so you might want to build off of that a little bit. You might want to have some of those values in there, and uh, just when we're trying to understand the theology of the Scriptures, baptism is the expected norm It's the expected norm for New Testament believers. Now listen to this. The Apostle Paul planted tons of New Testament churches. The Apostle Paul literally assumed every Christian he met had already been baptized. you imagine that? He assumed every Christian he'd met had been baptized. I have some Baptist friends that are very, 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 very Baptist. They also assume that very same thing, by the way. Um, but Paul just assumed that it was the norm for Christians to be baptized. It was universally practiced in the early church. And when Paul's writing to the Roman Christians that he had never met, he's never met these Roman Christians that he was writing to. Uh, he was writing a letter to their church. And yet he's saying, I believe you understand baptism because when, when you were baptized by water, it was just like your baptism in Christ." So he assumes they've all been baptized, and the practice of the early church was when you got saved, you got baptized. When you get saved, it's early church, you got baptized. Saved, baptized. Saved, baptized. Saved, baptized. And it was just part of your faith life in those days. By the way, public baptisms in those days were small events, kind of like we're going to have today, where people would go to a body of water, and Christians would gather around, and they would celebrate someone's life-changing decision to follow Jesus Christ. We're literally walking in the footsteps of people that have done it for centuries. They started in the New Testament. I'll just give you the... If you have your Bibles, look in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Acts chapter 2 and verse 40 is a is the model of the New Testament church. Is actually when Peter preaches and the very first believers come to know Christ and they're part of the church. So in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, Peter, after a long, powerful sermon about how the Jews were actually the ones who had Jesus killed and they're guilty of having him killed, but his his death was for our salvation, it says, with many other words, Acts 2.40, with many other words he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation, those who accepted his message, that day, were baptized. About three thousand were added to their number that day, and that's the beginning of the New Testament church. We built our whole church model is built around Acts chapter two and the following verses, where those those people have grace and um, they walk in small groups together. So they have growth groups, and uh, they literally practice giving to one another. They understand their spiritual gifts and. So the Apostle Peter is very strong in his understanding that as soon as these people get saved, we're going to baptize them, 3,000 of them, and add them to the church. Acts chapter 8 says, But when they believed Philip, as he preached the good news to the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized and followed Philip everywhere, astounded at the great signs and miracles he saw. Acts chapter 10, verse 46 Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Peter literally is one of the leaders of the church. And he orders them to to be baptized, which is pretty cool. Acts chapter 16. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. An amazing story behind her, by the way. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us into her home. So the Lord opened her heart to respond to the message of the gospel, and then she was baptized. That's so just saved and baptized. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house, and she persuaded us. So Paul can't imagine, as he's traveling through planting these churches and then he moves on to another church and he writes back and he finds out a whole bunch of people are getting saved through the testimony of the church. He can't imagine meeting a Christian that got saved that's not baptized just not normal thing for him. He can't imagine uh, people who never followed the Lord in baptism because listen to this baptism is just a simple step of obedience in the New Testament. It was a way to obey the scriptures and to obey the call of God. And so it becomes a a process of obedience. It's like Paul can't imagine Christians who don't go to church, don't gather together in small groups together. He can't imagine that. He's like, what in the world? Why would you not do that? It's kind of mind-boggling to Paul to think through those things. So, And let me just take a moment and tell you why physical baptism, I think, is better pictured in immersion. Baptism in the Greek text... Okay? I'm going to give you all the words, even though the ones that scare some of you. It means to immerse, to go under, to plunge, or to sink down. In, in some translations, in the original language, it means to drown. Take something and drown it. That's what baptism meant. Okay, So it has to do with being underwater. If the word baptism means to immerse, Um, or to go under, then that would be the norm. That was sort of the standard of the day. And I know there's a lot of church theology about this. I know there are churches. I know our original church, the Methodist church, had a sprinkling ceremony. And I remember seeing Brother David sprinkle people right here uh, at this altar and the one on uh, Turner Road. I remember seeing him sprinkle people for baptism because they didn't want to be immersed. And I get that. I get fear of water and all that kind of stuff. But the text actually means to immerse. It means to to dunk, to put someone under. John 3.23 talks about John the Baptist. John the Baptist, the original baptizer who preceded Jesus, by the way, and preceded the kingdom coming. And when the kingdom was coming and Jesus... Was, or John was preparing for Jesus' kingdom, he begins baptizing people. And here's what it says in John 3.23. John the baptizer was baptizing where there was, quote, from the Scriptures, much water, not a little cup of water. He didn't go around with a cup of water baptizing people. He drew them to the Jordan River. Big place, by the way. He drew them out to the Jordan River and he baptized in the river. He wanted them to understand what baptism really means, which is to immerse. And that means I got just a minute to tell you one of my favorite stories of all times of one of my friend pastors. When I was growing up as a kid, uh, my family went to Liberty Park Baptist Church in Crichton. It's a block from 703 Rice Street. It's literally one block from where I grew up. And uh, the house is still there, the little church is still there. I keep meaning to go by. I've been by twice to knock on the door and couldn't find a pastor there. Uh, It's still an active church, though, it's got name changed. I'd love just to walk through the building one day. Anyway, the founding pastor, or the pastor of that church at the time was Jack Maples, who has some distant relative. My mother's a maple, so somehow he was related to us. And we ended up attending his church. And uh, because it was a block away, even if mom and dad were at the restaurant working on Sunday, my brother would take us to church. We'd walk down to Liberty Park Baptist Church and sit in the pews. When I went to Bible college my freshman year from this church... I left to go to Birmingham. I came home during the summer. I wanted to connect with some of my roots. And so I decided I would look up Jack Maples and go, hey, you were my pastor when I was a kid. I, remember, I have all kinds of memories of being a little ch- in children's church. and We didn't have children's church back then. We, uh, we had Sunday school and all that and training union. I remember all that kind of stuff there. I'd love to connect with him just let him know, hey, a little kid that I grew up there and was baptized by you. I'm at Bible college now. And if you have any advice for me as a pastor... I'd love for you to tell me some stories. And so I sat on his front porch. He still lived in Crichton at the time. Big, heavy-set preacher. And uh, I sat on his front porch, and we drank sweet tea for about two and a half hours. And he told me so many stories, he's a comedian and a half, that my sides hurt. I mean, they just hurt. So one of the stories he told me was in his early years as a young uh, minister, when he was learning how to do things, Um, He'd never done a baptism, and it was his turn to do it uh, as a as the senior pastor of this little church. And so he took him down to Chickasabo Park. We've done baptisms there, and uh, he took him down to Chickasabo to the river down there and had a bunch of people. He was baptizing two or three people in his church, and he said there was this this heavy set lady that he was baptizing, and he said, you know, he'd never baptized a big lady before, so he said, here's what I learned: they're buoyant, they don't go under easy. So he's got his hand under her and he's trying to figure out how to baptize her and she won't go under for nothing. And I mean, my sides are killing me while he's talking about this. And he says, so finally, all I could think of was to pull my hand out and push. You know, find a place that was legal to touch, he said, and push. And he said, so I did. He goes, but you know what? When you're baptizing in a moving river and you push something under, it don't come up where you pushed it under. (laughs) he He said, I pushed her down here And the deacon caught her over there. (laughs) She came up screaming, screaming my name, and I'm just rolling, going, "That's awesome!" But John the Baptist would have had some of those events. You know, he would have had some of those exciting moments in his ministry life. But because he baptized where there, it says where there was much water, Acts chapter eight, verse thirty-eight. It's where Philip meets an Ethiopian and God leads that into a beautiful moment of salvation for the Ethiopian. And he orders the chariot to be stopped and it says he went down into the water. Philip didn't take a jug of water from his traveling. He was traveling. He would have had a jug of water with him. He didn't take a jug of water and go, hey, let me baptize real quick. He goes, hey, let's find a place that we can stop and go down into the water for baptism. So baptism is meant to be by immersion. Now, I will tell you, if... You know, people are terrified of water. They really have a terror of that if there's, you know, I've had elderly people in nursing homes. I've helped baptize them, and we do. We just take water and just, you know, put it on their head um, because they don't want to be in water, underwater. It scares them because, you know, they have breathing issues and that kind of thing. So the symbolism is to be underwater. But I think it's best represented in the original picture of how John the Baptist did it and how Jesus did it and how He intended for the New Testament church to do it every chance you got. So that's why we encourage you to have water baptism. And uh, for us to be able to put you under the water. And the purpose of baptism is to symbolize or picture the burial and rising. The death and burial and being risen from the dead. The, the perfect picture of what happened to you spiritually When you say, hey, I want to be baptized, and you go, this is what happened to my old life, I was buried, and I'm raised to new life now. That's exactly what it's supposed to picture. And it was intended in the New Testament church to do that. So here's the meaning of baptism, just as we finish out this morning. First of all, it signifies our death with Christ and our resurrection with Him. Romans chapter 3, 6, verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you trusted His death to be your death. You were baptized into His death. When He died, you died. Say, well, I wasn't alive back then. He knows that. And spiritually, He gave you the ability to be part of that and take your sins from, from today, your sins were on the cross that many years ago and taken care of. We were we died with Christ, and so when He rose again, we rose with Christ. We died with Christ, and we rose with Christ. That's what baptism does. It signifies our death with Christ and our resurrection with Christ. So we're no longer under the tremendous power of sin. We're We're actually now under... Secondly, under Christ's authority, and we're in His family. Listen to what the text says. Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into His death? The original text uses the preposition unto, not into. But we were baptized unto Christ. And that, that small difference is very important. It means we're under His authority We're in His family, and we're in His name now. His name, my name is now His name. And we share the name together. So I am a member of His family, and I was baptized under His authority, which means I'm supposed to live the rest of my life with Him as my final authority. My only authority rests in Christ, whatever He says. By the way, this culture that Paul's writing to had to make some hard decisions about that because the authorities would tell them, hey, you can't share the gospel like that. We don't want you talking about that Christ Messiah thing. And the the New Testament church had to go, our highest authority says we have to. So if it means we're executed, if it means we're persecuted, if it means you're going to take away our our finances or tax us higher or whatever you're going to do to torture us, Whatever it means, we still have to obey our highest authority. That's what it meant to be baptized unto Christ, under His authority. 1 Corinthians 12, just a verse for you to know. The body of Christ is a unit, though it's made up of many different parts, all its parts are many forms, so it is in Christ. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all given... One spirit to drink. That was what was so weird about the movement of the church in Jesus and Paul's day and in Peter's day, the first church. Here's what's weird. Slaves got along with owners. Rich people and poor people sat in the same Bible study together. Jews and Romans and Samaritans, people that never, ever culturally crossed over. We're in one spirit now with one Lord and one baptism So they would sit in groups together and hold hands and sing songs unto God and and read scriptures from the Old Testament and talk about the work that Christ did for them when He was on earth and talk about His death, His burial, and His resurrection and what it means to them. People that never got along before were now getting along. That's why the church is so important. You look at all the divides in our culture today, all the racial divides, and now we're fighting over... You know, flags, and next thing you know, we'll be fighting over futons. I don't know. It's just gotten crazy what all we can pick battles over. It's just nuts how quickly we can be divided over stuff. You know, the statues and the... the There's this whole list of things that just are... We're being completely battered by division. You know who's supposed to stand against that more than anybody? The body of Christ. We're the unifying work that says it doesn't matter what culture you're from, it doesn't matter what your background is, it doesn't matter what, what you've come out of, it doesn't matter how much money you've made, it doesn't matter how, how much trouble you've been in, it all comes under the cross, and we all surrender ourselves to one Savior who pays for everything. And now we're all equal. Everybody's equal at the foot of the cross. Everybody. That's why it says in Philippians, by the way, at the great judgment, we talked about this in the youth group the other night, at the great judgment, every knee is going to bow. Every single knee is going to bow. Because He is the judge of all. And one day that's actually going to be very true. When we accepted Christ, we were baptized into His body and into His family, and we were supposed to live like we're part of His family now. You have a royal bloodline. If you're a Christian, you have a royal bloodline. Your, Your father... Is the creator of the universe, creator of all things. Your savior is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You have a royal bloodline. That's funny how much we live like paupers and we 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 worry about things when we've been given we've been given all kinds of promises in the scriptures. He promises complete joy, complete hope, complete peace for those of us that will surrender and follow Him. Complete joy, and yet as Christians, just a little shot to you here. I've been guilty of it myself recently. As Christians, we chase after cheap substitutes to try to find joy, hope, and peace. They end up dissatisfying us. They end up hurting people because they're not the real joy, hope, and peace that God promises when we follow Him. God longs to satisfy you with His greatest blessings. And when He baptized you into the body of Christ, when He baptized you into the body of Christ, He literally meant for you to get all the blessings of the kingdom. That's my next point. Our baptism says we get all of the kingdom's blessings. It's all yours. That's what Christ said when He baptized you into His body. It's all yours. We can live like royal children. We are bought with a price. God wants to do so much more for you. You know, There's this great passage in the Old Testament... It's in 1 Samuel 12, where King David is disobedient. David was disobedient. And here's what God says to him through the prophets, through the priest. He says, David, I've given you so much. David, I, I, I've, I've took where you used to serve as a palace hand. Remember, David was the little guitar player, the, the lyre player, <laughs> the musician that would come to comfort the king where you used to serve as a palace servant, I've made that palace your palace. You are the king of Israel. And I've given you all the lands of the king. You have all his farms and all his fields and all his summer houses and winter houses. You have all his blessings. I've made all that yours. And then God says these words, and if you only knew how much more I wanted to bless you, if you would just be obedient to me, rather than that time he was taking a census. He was counting his people and bragging about his numbers. He goes, I never intended for you to get all that. I want you, David, I want you to, to realize how much more I want to bless you. There's a ton of New Testament verses. I'm not going to take time to go through them, but I'd love you email me. I'll send you some verses where it literally says all through the New Testament, Jesus says, God wants so much to give to you. He wants to give you so much. If, if an evil father knows how to give good gifts, here's what it says. How much more does God want to give you good gifts? So all through the New Testament, we're, we're learning okay, that we literally can have kingdom blessings. And we should, we should look at those. Now, the last thing I want you to hear. Baptism means we can walk in the newness of life. It means we can walk in the newness of life. Our life's supposed to be different once we're saved. And we're supposed to walk in the newness. It's one of the things that's encouraging for me about the folks being baptized today. Um, They all have a testimony of salvation from years ago, but it didn't click with them. And they just want to be baptized today to say, Now I get the new life, and I'm trying to walk in my faith. I want to walk it out for real now. So, the, the four things that it says in our text, I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, I was raised with Christ, and then verse 4, Romans 6 verse 4, I can walk in the newness of life with Him. Big theological term for that is called vicarious atonement. It's very impressive to use. Nobody will ever know what you're saying when you say it. Vicarious atonement. Doesn't that sound good? It literally means what Jesus did on the cross It's the same thing I did. I did it with Him now. He took my place and covered me. He took my place on the cross so I wouldn't have to pay my sin debt. And not only did He take my place, but then He transferred the gifts and the benefits of that. The death, burial, and resurrection are transferred to me. Completely undeserved. That's pure grace. So you're baptized into the family of God. There's, There's a complete healing that takes place spiritually for us the minute we get saved complete healing all your sins are washed away that's why i want them to sing that song today hallelujah grace like rain all my sins all our sins have been taken away isn't that great i want you to bow your heads with me and then we're going to take a few minutes and pray and then we'll uh, as a church family we'll walk some of you can drive down to the pond there's plenty of room to park vehicles down there if you'd rather drive um it's a pretty day to be walking um but we do have a church van uh darlene's willing to shuttle everybody in the van if you'd like to pile up in the van and go. We'll take that for you. So let me pray for us today. Father, I thank you so much that thousands of years ago, your son was willing to pay an incredible price on the cross to make my baptism meaningful, to actually transfer his righteousness to me and cover all my sins. I thank you that he paid for my sins in full. I don't have to pay for any of them. I thank you that he made everything possible uh, for me to live in righteousness. And Lord, I look forward to knowing all of our church family, especially those baptized today. I look forward to seeing their newness of life as they continue to walk in. And I've been encouraged uh, by the things they've they've literally experienced in their faith journey in the last few months, uh, by the small groups they've been part of and the things they're growing in. So I'm asking you now to use our time down at the pond as an inspiration for us all to help us grow in our faith. And Lord, may we really celebrate the new life that is real for us today. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen. It's a great day to go down to the pond. pond is just down past this uh, line of, uh, it's actually a field over here. And we've cut the back of it. so you. Can...